to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Reactive dog guardians. If your dog lunges, barks, generally loses it. The dogs, people, squirrels, skateboards, we have a free mini course just for you. Head over to agoodfeelingdogtraining.com, click free resource to get started on your reactive dog training journey today. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. We are so excited that you are here. I know that there are a lot of podcast episodes um, out there, but I think you're going to learn a lot from what Drayton has to tell us. So for those of you who uh, have listened to the podcast for a while, Drayton joined me back last year for an episode of Pitbull Stories. We'll be sure to link that up in the show notes. You can listen to that. Lots of good information. But today we're going to talk all about dog play. So Drayton, for those people who are listening who don't know you, can you just introduce yourself and tell them a little bit about who you are and how you help people? You got it. Um, well, my name is Drayton Michaels, and uh, I've been working with dogs for over 20 years. Uh, currently, um, I have a business called Urban Dogs, D-A-W-G-S. You can also check out that on YouTube. Um, and I work with about 400 dogs a year and uh, about 50 puppies a week. Um, you know, and when it comes to dog play, um, there's a lot of stuff out there that people are either misinformed about or don't know. Um, when I went to the Academy for Dog Trainers, uh, and when I studied with Dr. Susan Friedman, although my education was great, and I highly recommend both of those resources, very little is, is truly understood about how to shape and referee dog play so that we reduce stress and dogs come away with a, a good experience versus an okay or even a bad or a horrible experience. Yeah, and I feel like there's so many well-meaning trainers who want to like host puppy socials and host puppy play groups. And I think that we have to be honest with the potential risk of that and like the negative impacts that can have to the dogs if the person who is supposed to be running the play group is not as savvy as they need to be. Right, and the thing is, is that it, if you have some physical challenges, not necessarily that you're handicapped, but if you're a person who isn't athletic, if you're a person who is kind of slow on the uptake, you might want to be really, really careful about the dog play that you volunteer or, or you know, offer to people, whatever it is, because the thing about dog play is that it's based in what's known as ritualized aggression. And it's like contact sports. So it might not be the first tooth. It might not be the first tackle. It could be. But many times what it is is it's it's the 50th tooth. It's, you know, seven minutes into play. This dog has been doing okay, but they've been, they've been giving a lot of warning signs like I'm not interested. And the people are typically like over here on their cell phone or they, they you know, dog name, dog name, cut it out, dog name, dog name, stop it. Dog, and they're chanting the dog's name. They don't even know why they're doing it. So what I hope to accomplish today is to sort of just give a distilled version of what I do because I've conducted over 10,000 play groups since 2006. Wow. And I've never had a dog fight. I have never had a dog injured. I've never had dogs fight. I mean, there have been some dust-ups, sure. 
but I pride myself on being the Kobe Bryant of dog training. I pride myself on making sure that every moment that I'm with dogs and I'm training them, that they're safe. So, you know, we can get into specifics and we can give the listeners, professional or otherwise, some really good resources because I have all of this stuff either in a blog or I have it in videos on YouTube so people can leave this podcast and actually go see it in action, read about it. There's a science behind it. It's not just me running around hoping dogs don't get into fights. I know exactly what I'm doing and I can explain all that for you guys today. Okay, so I think I'd love to hear a little bit more about those play groups. So give everybody more of an idea. Like, what are the age ranges? Like, what are you asking of the owners before you come to the play group? So, like, how are you setting them up for success before the puppies right. even come? Or well, first of all, let's just talk about dog play in general. The first thing you need to do is you need to assess the dogs that are going to be in play. So we'll talk about puppies as a separate category. But in general, like, let's say you're, you know, you have dogs who are adolescents, you know, anywhere from six months into adulthood to the point where they still want to play, right? You have to assess dogs. So the first thing to know, to know and find out about is, is there a bite history, right? And so somebody, depending on who they are and how savvy and what their experience is, their dog might have gotten into a dust up and they think their dog is this crazy aggressive dog when really it was the equivalent of, Jimmy threw sand at Sally, Sally threw the pail at Jimmy, and they all cried, right? So, right. yeah, it was it was a sad moment, and it was a little a bump in the road, but it was nothing to be worried about. So, you know, if the dog doesn't have an egregious bite on their record, if the dog does not have anything that is concerning, that's the first checklist. Then we want to look at size and weight differentials. So, you know, what are the do- how many dogs are there? That's always a really important question, like how many dogs are in the playgroup? No matter whether it's two, three, four, whatever it is, you want to get size and weight differentials together so that you know what you're dealing with. So if I have a 50-pound dog and a 20-pound dog and an 8-pound dog, I want to know about their social history, and that would be the next checklist. So how social are these dogs, meaning how social are they in general, and how often do they play, and do they have history with each other, right? Because that's the next checklist. Like, what's the dog's history with each other? Are they novel? Do they not play a lot with each other? Those are the checklists. And if they all come back with, okay, so no bites or fights, sizes and weights are pretty comparable, right? Social history, wow, these dogs go to daycare, they play with, they live with dogs, whatever. It all checks out like, okay, everything's great. And then, wow, do they know each other or do they not? So let's just say, for example, that these dogs know each other, they play regularly. And one of the problems is one or two of the dogs is having an issue with play, let's say at 10 minutes, right? Stop that play at eight minutes and take a break or maybe go for a walk or end play. And then over that eight minutes, what you really want to do is you want to shape the play and referee it. And we'll talk about that in a second. So once you get that together, you're like, okay, I know what the dogs are. I know what my players are. Then you want to ask, well, where are we playing? We're playing indoors or outdoors and how much space is there to cover? Because that's crucial. Because if I'm in a thousand square foot training facility like Urban Dogs, then I don't really have too much ground to cover. But if I'm in a backyard and I've got, you know, 5,000 feet to cover, that may be problematic if dogs are way down there and they can't be prompted out or they can't hear a cue and I can't get to them. So I'm a big fan of having space that's reasonable for the humans to work in. I don't like to do dog play groups in like massive fields or like at a tennis court. I mean, I have and I could. But I'd rather have something that's a little bit more contained so that I can control the environment. Because remember, dog play is ritualized aggression. And the point of the humans is to be the referee. And you want to be able to control that environment as much as possible. Because as we know, behavior is in the environment. 
just like if I have dogs playing in the living room and they're getting stressed because end tables are in the way, but the same dogs can play outside in the backyard where they have more space and they're not stressed. So I take all of that into consideration before I go to a play group. Um, so the next thing would be, you know, we could talk about the human variable and, and what that entails, but was there anything that you wanted to talk about based on just, you know, assessing bite history, size and weight differential, social history with each other in general, and then the space, the area with which we're going to play with the dogs? So I feel like the location is really important for everyone listening, right? And I know that a lot of yep. people listening, like, want to jump to dog parks, but remember, we need to start small. We need to understand who our dogs are, their play styles, their preferences, how they're going to be successful. So remember that starting slow in a smaller location is probably much more advisable than jumping right to a dog park. Well, I'm going to be really honest, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of blowback, but I don't really care because my most my most important thing to ever impart to people is safety so I can sleep well at night and so dogs and people don't get in trouble. Dog parks are a bad idea. In theory, they're great, but in, in reality, dog parks are a bad idea. Number one, if you get lottery lucky and you never have a dog fight, and your dog's never involved in it, your dog will still get sick because there will be, at some point, an illness that goes through that dog park. Leptospirosis, Giardia, canine influenza, you just name it. The other thing is that nobody at dog parks are refereeing or shaping play. They're unhooking the dog, and they're standing next to the fence with their phone, and they're talking to people. And they're going, dog, they cut it out, and they're just yelling, or they're not doing anything. I would rather be in a bar fight then try to break up a dog fight at a dog park because you're going to get hurt. People are swinging and punching. Dust is going everywhere. And even if your dog isn't part of it, many times dogs will redirect and they will just start fighting because of distress signals. And I've seen that happen amongst dogs who are best friends. I, I could tell you a story in my basement one night, and if it wasn't for me and my skill set, these dogs would have been in a fight. And they're all best friends. I can tell you about a Thursday night play group that I've been doing, these dogs, these four dogs that are in this play group went to puppy kindergarten, they went to puppy intermediate together, and they went through two rounds of a play and train class. That's a total of 24 weeks of socializing with each other. I have circumvented no fewer than 50 dog fights between these two dogs, not because they're aggressive with each other, but they play super rough. One of the dogs wants to grab and like kind of do this move where they're holding the dog's face. And I'm going to put this video out of this particular playgroup. The amount of work that myself and my assistant put in is equivalent to, pay, to playing four quarters of basketball. That's how engaged we are, how many micro splits we're doing, prompting out, whoa, 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 leave it. Right? All that kind of stuff where we're getting the stress reduced. And these dogs are best friends who see each other once a week for the last 30-odd weeks. Imagine going to a dog park. You know nothing about the dogs, right? So, you know, you mentioned play styles and all that, but the thing you have to realize is that dog play styles are mainly predicated on who are the other players. Now, you may have a dog who's like a broken record, and I just play this way, I just play this way, I don't read, I don't read. But you can shape that dog. You can change the way they read play because you can change their predictive, their predictive value. And ultimately, that's kind of the, the bottom line when you're doing dog play is you want to change the predictive value, which I'll get into in a sec. So, you know, I know dog parks are popular and so forth, but I tell every single person that I come into contact with, friends and family, neighbors, assess the dogs, play in a backyard, even, day, even a daycare situation is preferable because it's probably going to be clean. And at least if something does happen, you, you've got people you've paid to watch your dog. 
Yeah, and I think it depends on locations, right? Because, like, in Colorado, we're spoiled because we have dog parks that are, like, thousand-acre open spaces where people walk and the dogs can be off-leash. So Yeah, that's a little different, though. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, tell us a little bit more about age ranges. Are you doing different things depending on the age of the dog? Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of puppies are really overwhelmed by dog play with other puppies. When puppies play with adolescent and adult dogs, those dogs have a defined play skill and a defined movement. And even though it may change depending on who their partners are, adult and adolescent dogs aren't all sloppy and floppy like puppies are. You know, you always, you'll hear me say a lot in puppy class, find your feet, buddy, come on, because they're running and they can, right? So dogs pick up the body language of humans and dogs, the micro small print. They pick that up first before anything. So a lot of times, you know, someone will come to class and their puppy's been playing with neighbor's dogs or whatever, but those dogs aren't puppies. So the dog's like, oh my God, I love you, right? And they love all the dogs. And then they come to puppy class and they sit there and they go, I don't know about these other dogs. They move weird. Like you guys move like me. So that has a big impact on puppy class sometimes because we may have three dogs who are in their VIP and the people are counter conditioning them and they're gradually getting used to puppy play. Not always, but that's a big factor. I don't do anything different for any dogs regardless of age. My my position changes based on size and weight differentials and whether or not the dogs are how they're reading each other. So for example, if a dog comes over to another dog and kind of buffs the dog, gives him a body check, and the other dog comes back and says, oh, I like that, let's play. So, okay, so from that moment on, I'm like, okay, so this dog is reciprocal. The only way I can equate it is Larry Bird, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, all these basketball players, when you listen to interviews with them, they will say, well, I could see the entire play. In other words, I knew that the other guy on the other team should be there, not there. I knew my guy should right? – that's how I am in dog play. I am literally in, like, rain man speed, adding and subtracting and figuring out all the things that I need to, whether it's a stress response, whether it's reciprocal, um, it, you know, and I film. And, and so if I'm not sure, I'll go back and I will watch stuff and make notes so that the next time I go to that play group, I'm better informed and so aren't my assistants. I admit that I'm super geeked, but that's how you do it. That's how you become great. You don't just go, I don't know, they're pulling and I don't know what happened. Like, you don't want to do that because even if the dog is just stressed, that sucks because fear and stress can be generalized, and now your dog may be generally fearful and stressed around dogs just because you thought that it wasn't that bad. Me personally, if I see a dog, like, like kind of like, I want to get away, like, I don't want to play anymore, I end the play, I'll scoop that dog out, put them in their pen, or I'll just say, all right, let's take a break, everybody, let's bring the dogs back to their seats or whatever, you know, let's just take a break, because I don't want the dog to have too much stress. A little bit of stress is one thing, but too much, and that's, you know, every dog is different, and it depends on it depends on the play group, too. I've, I've said this many times, and I want to address why dominance is not even something that should be entertained when talking about dog play because it doesn't exist the way people think it does. If we have five dogs in play, okay, and we say, all right, dog number one is the dominant dog, and we take the other four dogs out and we bring four other dogs in, 
that dog we think is quote-unquote dominant, they may not be. They may not have the same play style depending on the next four players, right? So it's very fluid. Dog play is not something that's like rigid. It's super fluid. It's like contact sports. And you may have three quarters where you're okay getting elbowed. By the fourth quarter, you're going you're gonna to elbow back because you're sick of it. So, you know, that's the analogy I give people is, you know, if your child was playing in a sport and somebody was like really messing them up, you would say, okay, well, you're going to have to check them back, right? But you can't really have that conversation with dogs and dogs are animals and everything is based on safe, unsafe, neutral. And they might decide, hey, that's, I don't like that anymore. I'm going to bite you. And the other dog goes, oh, I'm biting you back. And the next thing you know, three people are running over and going, oh my God, somebody, I don't even let that happen. I'm 10 steps ahead of those dogs. I'm thinking for them. Now, I've been accused of, you know, over being over-involved in play or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't care about that. When when somebody can tell me their record is 10,000 and zero and they've had over 10,000 dog groups playing and never had a fight or an injury, I'll listen to what you have to say. Until then, I don't really care. Your opinion on dog play really doesn't matter to me because then I need to see it on film because I have it on film. Every single thing I'm telling you, I can back up. So what people have to understand is if you want to have successful dog play, you need to be engaged in the process and have a true understanding of what's happening at the snout level. So, you know, my rule is if there for every four dogs, there should be two people. So, you know, if you have an eight dog play group, right, you should have two or three people and they should all be engaged and actively working on reducing stress. I'd rather see dogs play for 10 minutes at a shot, take a break for 10 minutes, come back and play for 10, right? I'd rather see that because play can tip over. I mean, you know, educators of kids and people who watch kids, parents, they know, all right, this particular group of kids with all that sugar, you get 10 minutes on the swings, now you're over here because I know little Jimmy's going to, right? And and they'll put all that effort and data into their kids and then they'll say, well, this dog's genetics are the reason why he, no, genetics don't even matter. They're, don't, why are you talking about genetics? You ever notice how nobody knows shit about genetics until it's a pit bull? Now, then they're experts on genetics, <laughs> right? Like nobody gives a shit about genetics with a poodle or a collie. But as soon as a pit bull comes on the scene, everybody's like, oh, I'm a genetics expert. Oh my God. And you know what you ask people when they start rambling just incoherently about genes and genetics and this line? You know what you say? You just go, well, explain brownie in motion to me. And if they go, huh, what? Just say, yeah, thanks. Go look it up. Because that's really what's going on with genetics is brownie in motion. Um, so when you have enough people and you have all this information, you've done your homework, play goes really well. And if it starts to go unfavorably, you're going to be engaged and you'll be able to circumvent it, right? I have had eight-pound shih tzus playing with 40-pound labs. Now I'm, now, I'm refereeing that so the lab is the weight isn't a problem. Maybe the lab's on leash. Maybe I'm bent over to 45 degree angle and I'm holding the big dog and just letting the little dog go nuts on him because I can. Right. And everybody's having a great time. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to let that 40 pound lab go with the 10 pound Shih Tzu. I'm not letting that happen. Right. No matter how good of friends they are, my job is to make sure both these dogs don't mess up. And they could, right? Inadvertently, a dog can get hurt and play. You'll see many times in a video where 
and there's like three or four dogs and they're laying around and they're on their back and they're playing and you'll see me and my assistants just gently moving hind quarters away from undercarriages that are exposed moving a jaw away from another jaw just gently just and the dogs are like oh yeah so i always tell people i'm the I'm the other dog with the big brain and the monkey hands, right? I'm running the show to make sure everybody feels good about it. And that's something that people have to understand. If you want good play, you want good training, it's all about the human. Everybody kind of knows that. But when it comes to dog play, kind of like even professionals are like, well, I don't know what happened. Well, you should have. I know people with PhDs in behavior that screw up dog play and they shouldn't. But they're, you know, they're not talking to me and that's why they're screwing it up. Um, So when it comes to you know, puppies, the, the thing you have to realize is that they also have two um, care periods, eight to 10 weeks roughly, and then 16 to 18 weeks roughly. And then there's another third fear period somewhere around like, it's hotly contested, but it's around that like 11, 12, 13 month area where there might be another fear period that comes in. And that's significant because, you know, let's say you have four puppies in a play group and all of them are in their fear period. So now you have four dogs who have heightened fear, right? That's relevant to that play group, and you should take that into consideration. People shouldn't blame. People are real quick to blame the dog and label the dog. Oh, he's shy. You know what I say to people? I'm like, your dog is nine weeks of age. We have food in our refrigerator older than this dog, right? Right. Yeah, so so be, be, relax. You know, don't label the dog. I mean, are you the same woman at this age that you were at nine years old? Oh, right. Like, I think we just, it's its so hard. And especially like as the dogs age and they get bigger, we have such a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact that the dogs have been on the planet for a couple of months. Right. And I think it's important to note that like uh, a mismanaged or a not very well run like social group with a dog in a fear period could be a make or break situation for a dog, right? So it's really important for all of you listening that you're taking all of this advice and you're making sure that wherever you're taking your dog, whether it's a puppy social or a playgroup for older dogs, that the professional there is doing at least at the bare minimum, like 80% of what Drayton is telling us today. Well, here's what I would say to consumers of, of, of dog training where the training you're hiring the person to do is to monitor and make sure your dog's play and socializing is safe. The first thing I would ask is, how many dogs is my dog going to play with? I need a number. Don't say I don't know. Give me a number. Is my dog going to be in a group with 15 dogs? What Are, are you going to take size and weight differentials into consideration? And then I would ask, um, who is how old are the people? Because many times at these daycares, they give the dog play responsibilities to the 18-year-olds because they're young. But a lot of these 18-year-olds, they may have the best of intentions, but they may have bad information. They're using air horns, startle dogs. You know, they're yelling at dogs. They're, they're, they're not engaged in the process, really. And even though they are, I've, I've you know, look, I'm in puppy class, you know, uh, seven days a week eight days a week sometimes and you know 50 plate 50 puppies a week you know so many times i'll be in the middle of a play group and it is going unbelievable right it's like picture perfect textbook play and it's one of the doggy parent puppy parents is like dog name cut it out dog name stop it oh what are you doing dog name. and i'm like i turn to the woman or the man and i go do me a favor if you have a question just ask me i said because there's nothing going on in here that is not being considered i'm not making stuff up like if you see me doing it there's a reason why i'm doing it 
And I was like, your dog's fine, but he's, but he, I go, yeah, you know, but he's not, he's fine. Trust me. If it was a problem, I'd have scooped him out. If there was an issue, we'd have put all the dogs back on leash and I'd have fixed the room somehow. I would have put, you know, three dogs over here. I would have broke it up. So a lot of times, you know, dog guardians are overprotective or underprotective, right? Very rarely are they right in the middle and that's not their fault. It's the fault of dog professionals who, you know, they want to extol all these and pontificate all this stuff to the public, but I, I've yet to see anybody dissect and figure out dog play other than me. Yeah, yeah. Because nobody explains dog play based on predictive value, and that's really the heart and the crux of Pavlovian conditioning. What Pavlov really figured out was predictive value, right? Because at some point, those guys showed up for work, they flipped on the lights, and the dogs were drooling already before they even set up the experiment, and that's when one day they were like, yo, Pavlov, they're drooling already. And he was like, shit, predictive value, right? Back chaining, <laughs> back chaining the event because they're consistent. So when I, because I put out an eight minute dog, a puppy play, um, eight minutes of puppy play. It was the first round, the first class with dogs. These dogs never met each other. It was eight minutes of puppy play. I put it up on Facebook. I put it up on YouTube and it got 18,000 views. And I was either Michael Vick or Superman, right? I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. He's an asshole. Like, all this shit. So I was like, wow, this is crazy. None of these people really understand dog play. A 16-year-old girl from England messaged me. She goes, I know exactly what you're doing. She goes, you do it way better than me and my family do it, but I know what you're doing. You're doing splits. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Many times what I am doing is I am changing the predictive value of what the other dog's doing to the other dog. So... If you read the blog I wrote about predictive value, if a dog gets tackled by a dog, right, they now record that as this dog's going to come in hot and tackle me. But if I circumvent that tackle and this dog doesn't get tackled, now the prediction is, oh, that human's going to block that dog for me. And many times what I do is I just downshift the gusto of dog A so dog B doesn't take as big of a hit. And the next thing you know, I'll hold dog A back a little by like the hind quarters, right? Yeah. And dog A is like, shit, hold him, teach, let me get him. And they're playing great. And I'll say to somebody, I'll say to the whole class, if I let this dog go, that dog will quit. And what I'll do is I'll have my assistant. I'll say, I'm going to let him go. You're going to get him, right? And I let him go, and the dog quits. And then my assistant holds the other dog, and the dog comes back. And it, you see it in real time. So dogs care most about safety. And if dog plays ritualized aggression, which it is, it is a lot of microaggressions. It's a lot of teeth and hitting. Not always, but a lot of times, that's what dog play is. Hey, if it isn't and it's just hearts and flowers and they're laying on the ground, great. Super. There could still be an inadvertent back paw that hits the dog's kidneys and causes them some duress. So you should still monitor things. But you can literally change the prediction, the, the predictive value of that dog to the other dog by refereeing. So verbal prompting. You'll see in a lot of videos where, you know, the dogs are playing and I just go, woo, woo, right? I just make a bunch of sounds, right? Like, or I'll say, leave it, whoa, and I'll just prompt. And the dogs run over, drop a bunch of treats, go back and play. When you do that, when you shape that, what you're doing is, is you're, you're preventing stress from building up, right? Because a dog might be getting chased and liking it, but what if they're getting chased and at some point it's a little much? What if the dog's getting chased and then they don't mind getting tackled, but it's a little much, right? So my job is to keep the dogs in the game. So when I'm doing verbal disengagements like leave it or touch or just making sounds and paying the dogs for coming out, that's why I'm doing it. 
because I want there to be the least amount of stress. There'll be enough stress, and all the dogs will learn how to get tackled, and they'll learn about teeth. They'll, they'll learn everything, but I'm not going to let them make all the decisions. I'm smarter, right? And I can look at stuff. They, they don't understand why this dog is doing. They just know it's happening, and it's either reinforcing or it's not reinforcing, right? Yeah. And that's what I'm looking for. So if the dog's like, yeah, jump on me, love me, I'll bite you back, this is great, fine. I'm going to mitigate that, referee it tactile if I need to, use verbals if I have to, but I'm going to make sure it goes well. So do you find that that translates? Like, so like maybe just like ballpark, let's just give an example. So like young dogs, like under six months old, who've been coming to the play group, you've been helping them manage. Do you feel like with that experience, it starts to translate? And obviously humans always need to be a part of this equation, but do you feel like as dogs age and they have this wonderful skill set of being redirected out of play when it's getting maybe too rough, do you feel like they can start to do that a little bit easier, maybe Yes. Not as heavily prompted. All behavior is increased with reinforcement. And if the dog play is reinforcing, great. But the dog play may only be reinforcing for four minutes. By minute five, it may stop being reinforcing. And that's why I tell people a lot of times who have like two dogs in the house and they're getting along, but at one point one of the dogs is tired of the other dog in play. I say, all right, so if they play good for 10 minutes, stop it at eight. Yeah. Right? Stop it at eight. It's just like, you know, it, 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 you know, the human analogy would be if you go on a first date with someone and it's killing by 1030, you're like, hey, this has been great. I'll call you tomorrow. Hug and kiss. But I'm going to go because you're going to end on that high note because, you know, man, if I stay up to midnight with this person, I don't know, man, another couple hours. I know me. I might not want to like them. Right. So you got to know your players. you got to know the context. You have to know the history. But it's 100 percent translates. And not only does it translate. I've had people text me a video or like email me like they've been out of class for three or four months and they're like, man, everything we learned at class, everything you taught our dog, every... here, look, listen to this and they'll tell me some story about they were in a dog play group and they were the only person in the backyard who could get all five dogs to disengage because they had hot dogs and a loud voice. Right? <laughs> so like you can distill it down to like knucklehead or you can bring it all the way up to applied behavior analysis, right? You can do everywhere in between. I could teach 11, 12 year old kids how to do this, right? It's not difficult. Like most dog training, it's easy. The hard part is the implementation. The hard part is people realizing, hey, I should be involved and I should learn about this. Let's discuss the dominance nonsense because it doesn't exist the way people think. Now, this comes right from Dr. Karen Overall. This comes right from Raymond Coppinger. If you know Raymond Coppinger, he studied dogs around the world with his wife, Lorna, for about 75 years. And what he came away with is that dogs are not pack animals, that dogs are like cockroaches and pigeons, and they will pack up to make babies, they'll pack up to take down prey, and they'll pack up for social gatherings, but they're not pack animals. Dogs aren't interested in linear hierarchies. They're not. They have the cognition of three-year-old kids for life by the time they're two. So there's no moral imperative, right? They're not thinking about things the way humans do. Dogs care about safety first, then food and water, and then some kind of fun, whether it's procreation, chasing a ball, chasing rabbits, whatever it is, right? That's it. Safety, food and water, fun. That's what dogs want. Dogs are not concerned about 
dominance. They're not. What ethologists figured out was the dogs that have the healthiest offspring are the dominant dog in that population of dogs. That's what dominance really means in the classical literature, and it's been completely misapplied and blown out of the water by idiots on TV who don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> they, really don't, they really don't understand dogs, and that's a shame because there's a lot of good people with bad information, and it's screwing up dogs. So, again... Going back to the example, if we have five dogs and we say dog number one is the dominant one, and I say, okay, well, let me get four other dogs, I guarantee you, unless this dog just has a really bad, like, reading problem or they're they're just – some dogs have that. I'm not saying there aren't dogs out there that, like, are just nut jobs in play, but you can – there's things you can do for that dog. You can teach that dog to read play. You can. I've seen – I've done it. I've done it with dogs. I've shown dogs. We're going to read this way, not that way. Um, but again, that's contingent on being an active participant in what's happening, right? Not just letting dogs off leash and just letting them quote unquote, figure it out. Unless you can, because there were dogs, um, my dog, Keisha, her friend, Montana, golden doodle, Bosley, golden doodle, rascal, labradoodle, Miley, English lab, those five dogs after about a year of refereeing and shaping and assessing and filming, I could let all five of those dogs in the backyard and like an Italian grandmother, I could just go leave it and they'd all come over. So I didn't have to have a scope on them every, because I did the work. So it absolutely translates in every group of dogs and every duo, whatever it is, is going to have its own intrinsic qualities. If you assess the dogs, if you referee and you film and you have somebody to teach you how to do it legitimately, it's unless you're just re, like you don't have the physical skills and you screw up the assessment, like you, you can get to a point where, you, yeah, you don't have dog fights. Like I know now I will never have a fight in a dog play group. I'll never have one. Right. It won't have one. It just won't happen because I know how to circumvent it. As a matter of fact, I've taken dogs who had really shitty play styles and paired them up with the right dogs, and they learned how to play. Now, there were some dogs maybe they can't play with, but I could find dogs for that dog and be like, oh, you think you're a badass? Like, where do you see these two dogs? And they're like, oh, shit, you play like that too? Okay, let me read different. No different than when you bring your tough guy friend to a real bar with bikers and badasses. They're like, oh, shit, I'm not that tough. Yeah, because context changes. Right, right, right. And just like you might take those badass bikers somewhere and they're like, oh, shit, I'm in the middle of all these jujitsu guys with black belts. I'm not that tough. Exactly. <laughs> right. Every context changes based on the participants of the, right? So the most important thing is, as you said, and I'm glad you keep coming back to it, human beings have to be involved in the play, right? And, every, you know, look, there were dogs that I worked with, like I said, long enough where I could be like, go play. I said, throw on my phone, hey, Keisha, leave it all the way, touch. And it was literally conversation. Right. And there's other dogs where I'm running up and down and I'm like, leave it, touch, and I'm splitting. What are the dogs giving me that day? Right? What are the dogs giving me? Well, and I think that that's another, like, really wonderful incentive on the human end. Like, the long-term understanding that, like, you being an active participant in the play and, like, supervising and really being a part of that, your dog is going to be able to respond to you and a lot of context. If you can call your dog out of playing with other dogs, imagine how much success you're going to have with their response time in other aspects of their life. So I'm hugging you through the screen (laughs) because you just hit on something that I explain to people all the time. You're absolutely right. It's another way things transfer over. I start to notice in play like maybe the third or fourth week in play, a puppy, I'll be behind them, and they'll just check in. Like, oh, okay, 
right? Because they know I, for so long now, for the last three weeks, whatever, I'm there, and they might be a little trepidatious. They're like, oh, okay, you got my back again. Great. And you're absolutely right. The two hardest things to get a dog to disengage from is prey and dog play. And if you can get your dog to disengage at the height of play, even to come out for a second and a half or two or whatever, and get a piece of food and run back, you're absolutely right. You build massive trust. You put tons in the bank, right? You put tons in the bank. So, again, if, if you want to get super geeked on it and you want your dog to, like, be like, how are you? What do you need? I'm here for you like an army sergeant. And you put the reinforcement history in, you know? I yeah, think I a think... lot of times, too, just let me finish. I think a lot of times, too, what, what turns people up in dog play is somebody tells them that they don't need to be involved, that the dogs, like you said earlier, like the dogs will figure it out. And I don't let dogs figure it out too much. Like, enough, but not too much. Right, Just well, like kids. Well, yeah. And, like, you know, if they're not capable of making good choices, why are we going to let them continue to make bad choices? And they might make, see, they might make, a choice that's neither good or bad. It's just not very reinforcing for the other dog. In other words, there's a dog that I have um, in, in Thursday night play and train named Raven, this little like 35 pound pit bull. And she's got a great play style. Number one, she's the only female dog out of four dogs. So there's four boys in there and one girl. And now we're talking cellular DNA shit, right? Cause female dogs know from the smell and so forth. This is not a female dog, male dog. So there's a little bit of that going on. She likes to play with her mouth a lot and like kind of grab the cheek. I've circumvented, you know, dozens of potential dog fights, not because the dogs are afraid of each other, right? Aggression's rooted in fear. It's because they play a certain way. And just like kids, like if I see a kid doing something like Billy, come here for a second. You can't do that. Here's why. Cause she's going to be annoyed. And then she, right. You can't do that, Billy. Don't do that. I know you did it to Tommy, but she's not tough. Right. Mm-hmm. So dogs, you don't have that ability that even have a conversation. So you have to like, okay, I'm going to move the jaw out of the way. Okay. I'm going to move the jaw out of the way. I'm, I'm just moving the jaw. I'm just Right, I'm just gently, and the dogs stay in the game. And if it gets a little much, and one of the dogs is like, hey, I don't like that, Oop, I pick them up, you're out. Right, I just scoop them up, right? So I'm not letting dogs play to the point of almost fighting and pulling the dog out. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm literally watching every nanosecond of, of everything that's going on in the play group and making a decision, does that, dog, does that dog want that based on what they're giving me? And if they don't, I might remove them, I might split them, I might whoop, whoop, call them out, but my whole job, is watching for signs of stress. Everybody wants to, you know, well, what is the tail doing? Who gives a shit? <laughs> Seriously, do you really give a shit about the fucking dog's tail in a playgroup? You know how many people will stand around and pontificate? Well, his tail is pointing to the left. Who gives a shit? The fucking other dog is going like this with its face, like, get away, get away, you're bothering me, you're bothering me. You're looking at the wrong dog. Right. You're looking at your dog, right? And that's the other thing. A lot of people have the tendency to, like, only focus on their dog, and they think their dog is either getting beat up or beating the other dogs up. And it's usually neither one because it's kind of binary. I mean, if dogs are going to fight or really have an issue, like, it's going to happen. You know, dogs land 25 bites in four seconds, right? So, you know, you really, you know, you really benefit on so many levels by being actively engaged in dog play with your dogs. And if you are an athletic person or you are a person who needs to be more athletic, there's no better. I mean, I, I literally play four quarters of basketball like eight times a week. It's a built, it's a built in workout in the job. It is. 
but dogs are like that in general. I always express, like, whenever I've been on the news, and like, what, what are the benefits of having a dog? I'm like, well, you get out and walk, you know? You get off your ass. <laughs> dogs will make you move. Um, well, okay, so I wanted just to touch on something else. So I think that sure. as dog guardians, so everyone who's listening who maybe isn't necessarily a dog professional but just a dog guardian, I know that the, the dog dynamic, the dog play, can be a big source of stress for the human end. And I think that... As you're an active participant and you learn and you start to understand your dog and the back and forth and when you need to intervene, I think that that can really help empower the human end so we don't have to bring this like weirdness to the table because we feel prepared. We've set our dogs up for success with appropriate matches and we know what to watch for and there's not this X factor of, well, what if they get in a fight? Well, because it's not going to come to that because we know how to prevent that. Yeah, and if you're if you're not able to... Well, let me put it this way. If you have any doubts about the play going in, then do a warm-up walk, right? Just meet on leash because if it goes bad on leash, it's a lot easier to pull the dogs out. You don't even have to do it like a, a butt-to-snout greeting. Like you can do a distance greeting and go for a walk with the dogs. If they start playing on leash at the at like you know on someone's lawn and they're like, I love this guy, great. That's going to be – now, it, the dynamic of off-leash is different, but that's a good little piece of data. Okay, wow, we were outside for 15 minutes. These dogs look like they really like each other. That's better than just let them go and see what happens, right? Um, you know, the other thing is that a lot of times what happens is dogs are play-starved because people aren't proactively finding their dog's friends or finding a quality daycare. And so when they do finally get into play – you know, it's like your friend who never goes out. You find, you know, you and your girlfriends go out every week. You pick up this new chick, and she's like going nuts in ten minutes. You're like, "Yo, slow down, Sally. What are you doing?" <laughs> right? And a lot of dogs are like that. Like they've oh, got a sure. really good play style, but they're just over the top, right? Because they don't get enough. And I've seen a lot of dogs who are play starved. Um, and with that said, it's no matter the breed, the size, the age. The one of the hardest things for dog guardians to do is find other dogs for their dog to play with. It really is. It's such a hard thing to find because, you know, you may have a bigger dog, a littler dog, whatever, you, your schedule, how all those metrics come together. But what I would say is make it a concerted effort, just like you would if you had a child. You'd fix your schedule so that little Billy or Sally could play sports or whatever it is they wanted to do to be social because dogs are social creatures. They are socially compulsive. They want to go smell dogs when they see them. They want to know what's up with dogs. Humans aren't socially compulsive. You can go to Times Square with your headphones and eyeglasses eye, eye on, your sunglasses, and tune everybody out in Times Square and not want to say hi to anybody and still be a nice person and not be myopic, right? Humans are not socially compulsive. Dogs are. And that's why it's very important to make sure those social gatherings that they have go well. I'd rather see – matter of fact, I have videos on the Urban Dogs YouTube channel of these two dogs, and one of the dogs – um is really big like a big great pyrenees just a love just a love told but he plays super rough and the other dog sam like a little sado dog um half maybe less than half his weight they live together and the first time we did a, a first time we did play in the backyard we ended it in like a minute and we put the big dog on leash sammy was afraid of him and then we got a big pen Right? We got a big, massive pen, and we put the big dog in the pen. We let them play like that so Sammy could be safe. And we had one dog on leash, and we had, we had uh, the big dog on leash and Sammy off leash. Sam, Sammy still got hurt because that dog was so heavy. He bumped into him, and he was like, ah, right? Something happened. Like, he hurt his arm. And all I said to the mom was, imagine if we didn't have him on leash. Yeah. Right? And he got hurt. And the other, right? So 
everything that I do is always geared towards how are the dogs going to do with this, right? If the dogs are, and I will stop play and reconfigure it in a nanosecond to make sure it goes well. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of my record of having no dog fights, no dog bites, and I'm going to keep it. Um, the, the thing about tactile refereeing where you see me like I'll put my forearm right between the dogs and I'll go under the dog's chin and like move them out or the dogs will be chasing each other and I'll put my hand on the um, the hind quarter and I'll kind of just move the dog out like I'll just spin them away so they don't tackle the dog that's not something that I recommend people just do that's right. something that you really have to know you have to know your skills you have to have footwork you can't be scared. You have to have super cardio and you can't be afraid. You can't be yelling. You have to be like super calm and just real zen about it. And just because what will happen if when you do that is you will increase those dogs playtime. You will give them, you'll give them minutes because a lot of stuff happens at the snout level. Right. And if you get good at that and it's, it's almost the only way I can teach is if somebody's in the room with me, right. My assistants know how to do it. You know, my current assistant, Danielle, like, She's phenomenal. Like she could run any play group. Uh, Laura, Laura Giuliano, who assisted with me for a couple of years, she's got a business. Same thing. Like she knows how to referee dog play. There's very few people who really know how to do it. There's a lot of people who want to criticize, and a lot of people who have opinions. But I don't have a whole lot of videos from them actually doing it. You know, I've, I've never read any blogs that they wrote explaining, you know, how when, when you shape play and you reduce stress. When you reduce stress for dogs in general, what you're really doing is you're lowering stress hormones, right? You're helping. It's just no different than if me and you were in the middle of a game and I'm like, no, 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 go over here, pass, right? And you're all of a sudden, you're not as stressed because you're like, oh, shit, Drake's got it. He passed me the ball, right? And that's the kind of symbiosis that I like to have with dogs. Like, I'm on your team. I'm on, I'm, I'm here to help you guys feel good about this, Right. right. Well, and, and I love that you are proof of what's possible, right? You're proof of how we can manage and orchestrate these groups so that all of the dogs can be really, really successful. Because I think ultimately our dogs desperately need it. Our dogs need those outlets to play and, and hang out with their dog friends, but we need to set them up with that skill set. So, Drain, I want to kind of wrap it up here, but I want to hear from you. Um, maybe if you want to leave the listeners like with like a couple of maybe, I don't know, red flags maybe where you would intervene and maybe some things that you see people intervene and maybe they don't need to, just generally speaking. Well, it's hard to give, um, you know, specifics because dog plays pretty fluid and, and things happen quickly. What I would say is, just stay engaged. You know, go watch all the videos that I've made. Read the blog that I wrote on. Um, it's uh, Barks from the Guild, the uh, the magazine from Pet Professionals Guild. I have a, a blog there, with a lot of videos, and you know, as with any dog training, make sure that you're in your comfort zone, right? I know that people want to get out of their comfort zone. Well, that's great. Go, you know, go skiing if you don't ski. Then, right? Like, don't take your dog's well being and risk it because you're trying to do something with your training and you want to get out of your comfort zone and also just assess the dogs. If there's any bite history, you know, look, I have no problem asking somebody, okay, yeah, the dogs can meet. I need to know the bite history. I need to know social. Just give me the info. It's like everybody, you know, needs to just understand that having that data, whether you understand it or not is good information. Right. And people yeah. sometimes don't ask, 
that's why I say don't meet unknown dogs. Like, don't just happen upon a dog on a walk and say, oh, okay, let's meet, because it makes it bad. Everyone thinks their dog's friendly. But the world is not filled with people who have an eye for behavior or observational skills or the patience or the dedication to, you know, come home after work and, like, study and be really good at what their dog may need. That's where, you know, I come in. And people like me who are doing this and charging people money and, you know, and I'll tell you, dog play is a really, like, people don't know how to do it. I'm telling you. I I know people who I people with really like deep skills and knowledge and they just they still stand there with their fingers crossed and they don't know what that you know they're again it's like you know if you look at it from the standpoint of this is ritualized aggression it's this is contact sports then it really becomes easy to see why the human being should referee absolutely you know, and, that's, and that's the best that's the best way i can i can describe it is to be a referee and and make sure the dogs are, are feeling good about it Look, if a 16-year-old girl in England who, you know, isn't a professional understands why I'm doing it, then I don't understand why other professionals don't get it. You know, it's, it, yeah, dog play is, I'm, it bums me out to, that's why I called you and I, I, I you know, I, I wanted to do this because there's a lot of stuff on leash walking that I, don't, I think is bunk and there's a lot of stuff on training that I, you know, but, but dog play, it's like they, they don't even really have it figured out. Right. I do. <laughs> right? So, and that's why we're sharing this information with everyone today. <laughs> I can figure it out. Right? You know, um, so anyway, that's... Okay. That's, yeah. No, that's wonderful. Okay. So, Drayton, so um, just so everyone listening, if they happen to be in your area, do you have openings for playgroup? Like, are you accepting new dogs for that right now? Well, I don't necessarily have a playgroup. I teach puppy classes. Okay. Um, puppy kindergarten so ages 18 weeks uh, i'm sorry 8 to 18 weeks uh, if you have a small breed puppy um you know i'll let them in around 20 weeks um and then if i have the ability to do a puppy intermediate after graduation i will but many times you know i have to reserve the spots for the incoming puppies because they're on the timeline um the two strict like play and train classes that i have on tuesdays and thursdays those those are kind of the way they are i don't to have a new dog come in is rare because those people just keep signing up my tuesday night class has been coming for two years amazing they just keep showing up every every time i'm like at week five we sign it up again they're like hell yeah so um you know if if people want to learn about dog play you know they don't have to be in my area they don't have to even have to hire me they can just go to the youtube channel and they can watch all the videos read the blog and text me or call me or get in touch with me and say, Hey, you know, we have two dogs. We want to learn about play or, you know, me and my friend each have dogs and you know, okay, great. So you and your friend can hire me and we can, you know, get my assistant and we can. So the thing is, is that if you do have the ability to hire a positive trainer, you know, someone who's not going to hurt and scare your dog to motivate them and, and, and they have the ability to educate you, take that take it you know people are really like they just take for granted they have a dog and they think they know what they're doing and you can love your dog to high heaven it doesn't mean you understand what's going on yeah oh for sure for sure oh my god okay so um everyone will be sure to include links to um the blog and the youtube series that drayton mentioned and then also his contact info so you can reach out to him if you need help and support with dog dog play and then drayton is that something you could do in a virtual setting if they could send you videos could you coach them that way um i 
would rather have people not video. Well, I mean, yeah, not unless you're going to have, see, that's the thing about video is I don't want people to rehearse things, right? Like the last thing I want to do is have somebody send me a 30 second video of two dogs that are fighting. It's right. Like, Can you fix this? So don't send me any videos. Please <laughs> don't. Right. And number two, like I film everything I do. I just did a dog walk with uh, this dog, Ralphie, who's, who's staying with me. And I carried a GoPro in my hand and on my chest. And I do that for every dog walk, pretty much. Right. I have a four camera shoot for dog play, you know, a camera on a tripod, etc. I film. So I know what it means to film dog training. And the average person, you know, the camera's over here. and The most important thing to do is if your dog or your dogs have had trouble playing together is have them stop playing for a minute, right? It won't be a bad thing. And contact me. And let's have a discussion and figure out how and what's going on so that we can have these dogs be social. And let me just say this. Let me end because I just remembered this. Let's talk about muzzles. Because a lot of people will take a dog with a bite history who's afraid of dogs and put a muzzle on them and let them go play. And I think that's terrible. Because that dog, first of all, now their mouth is compromised. They're already afraid. That's why they're biting dogs, right? Muzzles can come off. And you, a dog can muzzle punch another dog. And that dog who's muzzled might be even twice as stressed now. And so now they're really over the top in play. So if a dog has a bite history, a, a concerning bite history, just don't have them play. Right. And again, you'll get a thousand people telling me, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And my dog, great, your dog won't muzzle. And they, that's one dog. I'm talking about a lot of dogs who I have dealt with and dogs that I have assessed. And not, they shouldn't be in dog play with a muzzle because it's not going to go well. Right. So a lot of people think that that's kind of some, some fix all. Well, we'll just put a muzzle on them. Well, there's a, now, I'm not saying you couldn't. Right. Right. But just the muzzle alone is not the but solution. Just like yeah. Throwing it on, like you're like, well, you know, I'll wear this scarf today. You know, like it doesn't. And then the dog has to like be conditioned to have the muzzle and feel good about it. But a lot of people just, you know, somebody says, some trainer says, oh, just put a muzzle on him. It works for my dog. You know, this whole idea, like it works. It's individual, right? It's just like if your friend has dietary advice, you don't just say, oh, we'll just eat this because we know enough now that people shouldn't just eat stuff unless they do it on their own. Like, I'm not going to tell you to eat stuff. I'm not going to be responsible for your indigestion or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. Figure out to eat for yourself. And that's something that, again, a lot of people mess up with. You know, they're like, I'm going to put a muzzle on the dog and then it still goes bad. Yeah, no, there's a lot of inhumane things that happen to dogs in that context for sure. Okay, Drayan, thank you so much. Hey guys, so I do not take promoting a product lightly. I really don't. I'm not going to tell you about a product I don't really believe in, and I'm not going to tell you about a product that doesn't have a fabulous team behind the product, but I was out of CBD for probably like two weeks, and then the lovely ladies at VetCS got me another bottle, and I didn't really think about it, but after I started giving the dogs CBD again, Waylon's energy level greatly increased. I think that the CBD helps him feel so much better. So guys, this is not a gimmick. There is no bullshit. I believe in this product. And if you think that your dog could benefit from CBD, I highly suggest check out VetCS. You can learn more about CBD for dogs, cats, and horses at VetCS.com. And you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.